is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. He once asked, if you're innocent, why are you taking the fifth? Today, former President Trump took the fifth. We'll go in-depth. The former president may be gaining even more control over the Republican Party after the results of some primary races yesterday. Did the FBI search help his candidates? And do we have to worry again about polio? Health officials in London are concerned. Evictions are up again now that the moratoriums have been allowed to expire across much of the country. Record was set last month for the warmest nights ever in the U.S. as heat waves rolled through. NFL star quarterback Aaron Rodgers says he's a better player because of a psychedelic trip to Peru and a better person, too. And uh, new health movements gaining in popularity thanks to social media. Uh, we'll explain why more people are taking off their shoes and walking barefoot outside. Well, you start, though, with former President Trump. Taking the Fifth Amendment, Morgan Harper is a former federal and state government attorney who is in New York City today. Morgan, thanks for being with us. So let's very quickly set the stage. This is an investigation. It's a civil investigation, right, by the attorney general of the state of New York. And essentially it's looking into whether the Trump organization and Mr. Trump either uh, inflated the value of his property when trying to get bank loans or deflated the property value when filing taxes. He goes uh, today to do a deposition under oath, and he pleads the Fifth Amendment. You take from that what? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's great to be here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a big move because it's a bit of a risk, though, pleading the Fifth and saying that he isn't going to want to self-incriminate during that, that deposition, so he's not going to be answering questions. Uh, can't be used against him in a criminal investigation, which there is an active criminal investigation by the district attorney in New York. It can be used against him in a civil investigation. So uh, it's a bit risky. We still don't know everything that's to come or what the attorney general of New York has uh, in a possible lawsuit that might be brought. But this is a big move for sure. Is it even riskier in the sense that he has been deposed about these things before and did answer some questions then and now years later is saying um, not this time? Yeah. And also in his public comments <laughs> that, you know, a lot of people are aware of that he's criticized others for not being willing to answer questions. I mean, all of that does start to lead to further questioning of, you know, is this in response to other legal issues that he's having? Is he nervous about possible uh, implications that could come from shedding more light on the, the aspects of his, his business finances? Am I correct, uh, Morgan, that if it goes to a trial, a civil trial, uh, unlike a criminal trial where uh, the jury is told to disregard, right, uh, if if a, a defendant takes the fifth, in a civil case, aren't they instructed that they can infer from a Fifth Amendment pleading that perhaps there was some guilt? Absolutely. And and yes, that's exactly a bit of the risk here because it does become relevant for what a jury can consider um, in determining guilt or innocence in a civil in a civil trial. Does he have some defense here, though, that it is Letitia James who, you know, he'll say she's been out to get me the whole time. But I mean, she's gone to fundraisers. She's campaigned on basically, you know what, uh, I'm going to go after Donald Trump. You know, I, I think in a if it does come to the point of a lawsuit being filed and in a trial, this is a very sophisticated attorney general, uh, the New York attorney general, Letitia James. She has a, a 
a strong team. And I do think that they are only going to take that step of filing a suit and, and going to a trial if they're confident in the information that they have. So, you know, some of her prior statements, the relevancy of that, uh, I, I don't I don't know that that would really impact things too much. It'll be based on the strength of the case that they bring and any possible defense that the former president would be able to offer. By you, you referred before to the uh, the fact that because it was a, a civil case, it, it it can't be used against him. Anything uh, he doesn't say can't be used against him in any potential criminal case. But might not the the Manhattan District Attorney, who was looking into, uh, or previous District Attorney anyway, was looking into Trump, and now it's not clear exactly what the status of that investigation is. But could they not take the fact that he pled the fifth? as a kind of energizing force, if you will, to suggest to them that maybe where there's smoke, there really is fire? Yes, I think so. And, uh, you know, there has been a lot of frustration and speculation around why the criminal investigation has stalled out of the district attorney's office. And so uh, this could be the type of thing that re-energizes that case. Absolutely. It's Morgan Harper, former federal and state government attorney who is uh, there in New York. Morgan, thanks. Former President Trump might be strengthening his grip on the Republican Party, especially after yesterday's primaries in Wisconsin and a few other states. And could the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago have helped him? Gunnar Raymer is political director for the Republican Accountability Project. Gunnar, thanks for being with us. So when it comes to uh, Donald Trump and his base and what seems increasingly to be a, a large number of people in the Republican Party... It looks like his an- the answer is he is strengthening his position, doesn't he? Yeah, that is absolutely correct, right? And we can talk about what, what happened in Wisconsin last night that, you know, the one thing that is clear is the Republican Party, sadly to me uh, and my organization, uh, is owned by Donald Trump. If you look at what happened in Wisconsin last night with Tim Michaels, a businessman, sort of a carpetbagger, came out of the state, had some previous ties to Wisconsin, handily defeats uh, a former statewide uh, candidate, Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. And, you know, Rebecca Clayfish was a part of that Republican uh, contingent, uh, establishment contingent. You know, she was endorsed by Mike Pence and Ted Cruz and former Governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Yet Trump endorsed businessman Tim Michaels won. You look at what happened in Arizona the previous week. Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona, Mike Pence endorsed Karen Taylor Robeson for governor, who wins uh, pretty handedly. Uh, the Trump endorsed candidate who has no uh, prior experience in politics, Carrie Lake. Uh, and I will just say that, you know, Tim Michaels has echoed the the election fraud claims that, that Trump promotes. Uh, he said that he would be interested in signing a bill that would decertify the 2020 election results in Wisconsin. And he said that he'd want to abolish the uh, Bipartisan Elections Commission uh, in Wisconsin. So, yes, Donald Trump's grip uh, on the party is not loosening. Was there ever really a, a Pence-Trump divide that was that was real when it came to picking candidates and getting some to win? Because Donald Trump has had his marks the whole time, and, and it was also the Congress people who voted for impeachment, right? And he said, I'm going to get all nine of you, and uh, he's probably going to get Liz Cheney next week. Uh, he's doing pretty well with his list. Uh, he is, sadly, again, from my perspective, our organization's perspective, doing very well. But that's a great point. Look at the impeachment Republicans, right? There were 10 of them in the House. Anthony Gonzalez, Adam Kinzinger, John Katko, Fred Upton, they all retired. Uh, Tom Rice, a very conservative congressman from South Carolina, lost. Peter Meyer from Michigan, who has 
very good name ID in his congressional district because of his last name, lost Jamie Herrera Butler in Washington State, lost Valadeo and Newhouse barely won. And Liz Cheney, sadly, again, is going to have a really difficult time getting reelected. So as we make our way through uh, the primaries here, it is very clear uh, that Donald Trump's endorsements matter. But it's not, you know, when you just look at the endorsements one by one, you're sort of from Trump, you're sort of missing the forest for the trees across the country at all levels of government. Uh, you have candidates running on a stop the steal MAGA America first platform. And now that we've made our way through the primary, we see that they're winning, that this is a winning message among Republican primary voters. All right. So let me ask you this. You're a Republican, right? Yes, I am. Oh, OK. At, at what point do you have to, I guess, stop calling yourself a Republican because the Republican Party, as you've just uh, verified, is yeah. increasingly a Donald Trump uh, stop the steal oriented party, certainly not the party that I suspect you joined when you first became a Republican. Right. So at what point do you have to sort of admit to yourself, hey, I'm not a Republican, really? Yeah, that you know, that's a great question. Uh, I was born in, in Bakersfield, California, where I'm sure a lot of your n- uh, listeners know of the area. I grew up with dogs named Nixon Reagan. I still consider I'm still a registered Republican. I still consider myself deep down a conservative. And you know, when I look at someone like Liz Cheney, who has a very conservative voting record, and, and a, uh, she stands for the Constitution over political party or one person. But to your point, listen, as a Republican, uh, I'm going to continue to beat on Republicans. Uh, because I think I know what a Republican Party should look like. And that's the point of Republican Accountability Project and Republican Accountability Pact. We recently launched, you know, uh, Republican voters against Herschel Walker in Georgia because he is the type of candidate that is a complete Donald Trump, stop the steal, lies about a bunch of things type of candidate. And, you know, as a Republican, I can sort of, and our organization can push back against that kind of candidate coming from a Republican conservative minded perspective. So I'm going to I'm going to continue to, you know, do that battle and fight back for what I think uh, is a really important Republican Party. Gunnar Raymer, political director for the Republican Accountability Project. Coming up, a hallucinogenic concoction has made one of the NFL's biggest stars claim it's made him a changed man. We'll look into whether psychedelics really do have mental health benefits and more and more people are grounding themselves in what's called the earthing movement we'll explain exactly what that is right now though children living in london going to be offered an extra dose of the polio vaccine comes after the discovery of the virus in the city's sewage there's also a confirmed case in new york recently first nearly a decade in the u.s Dr. Robert Almer is Dean of the School of Health Sciences and Practice, Vice President for Government Affairs at New York Medical College. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So why the extra dose? Is the, is the first one that most of us get, is uh, little kids, not enough? It's enough, but uh, many people may think they've had all the doses they need. Their records may be incomplete, or the information somehow may have been corrupted over time. So the uh, the best policy, if you're not sure is to get that extra polio shot. Why, why is London doing children and not the general population, do you think? I'm sorry, did you say London? Yeah, I mean, London is, is making these extra doses available to children, but I'm wondering why not the general population? You really have to check with them. Uh, in general, polio vaccination in this country is focused on young children because we want them to be protected from the very get-go. Uh, starting at two months of age. Children under two are only protected 
if the rest of the family has been vaccinated. But in the U.S., that has largely been the case. Is this something to start worrying about now that we have had a case here and they're detecting you know, some virus in the sewage there overseas? Or are we still mostly uh, saying that this is something that is circulating among the unvaccinated, which is that's where you would find it if you didn't get your polio vaccines like most of us did when we were little? That's right. That's a very good point that you make. However, again, you may feel that you've had all your shots uh, from when you were young and uh, you might be mistaken. So what I've always told my patients is it never hurts to double check that vaccine record. uh, And if in question, get that extra polio shot. I mean, is the reason that we're starting to see these samples of polio virus in, in sewage water in London, the case that Mike mentioned up top in New York State. Is that because there's been any kind of a fundamental shift in the way the virus is circulating? Is it because there are more and more parents, for example, we do know that, that have become anti-vaxxers and maybe are not vaccinating their kids? Is it a, a combination of things? It's a great question, but it's too early to tell for sure. Uh, We certainly know that uh, when people are not vaccinated, they can get the polio virus in their system, typically in the stomach and intestine. And only a very tiny percentage, maybe 1% or less, will go on to develop paralysis. So you won't know that they're infected. They won't really know that they're infected. Of course, if they go on to get paralysis, it's a very, very difficult condition to treat. And sadly, it can also become fatal. So the real question and the real strategy is to get everybody vaccinated against polio. Dr. Robert Almer, Dean of the School of Health Sciences and Practice, Vice President, Government Affairs, New York Medical College. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. While the L.A. City Council voted to extend the city's eviction ban, more people now getting kicked out of the apartments and rental homes across the country as the pandemic restrictions have ended. Filings returning to the pre-pandemic levels in a lot of cities and a lot of states. Advocates are asking those states and cities to provide more legal protections for tenants. Carl Gershenson is project director for the Eviction Lab. They gather and track nationwide eviction data. Carl, thanks for being With us, it's getting pretty bad, or is it already really bad in terms of evictions? It's already pretty bad in most of the country. Uh, You know, we are, there are some places on the East Coast, like New York City, that are doing incredible. Their evictions are something like 60% down from average. But if you remove New York City, um, we are right back exactly where we were before the pandemic hit. Was this uh, an expected thing once the restrictions uh, ended? There was help provided for people and there was a lot of time that you had to to make up the rent. But there was always that kind of on the horizon, right, with a lot of these programs that uh, you didn't pay, but you're going to have to at the end of this. And people can't come up with all that that back rent. That's right. I mean, there were sort of two um, trends happening during the uh, the pandemic. I mean, you're right. There is the moratorium, which gave people time to. Uh, collect emergency rental assistance, unemployment insurance, the child tax credits. Savings are higher than they'd ever been. At the same time, rent was going up um, at unprecedented rates, like 15 percent, up 15 percent in 2021. So people had savings and they've pretty much spent them down. And now people are 
trying to pay uh, the highest rents they've ever paid in their lives. But we know that incomes haven't tracked. You mentioned uh, at the very top, except for New York City, uh, that New York City seems to be uh, uh, an outlier on, on this sort of thing. Is that because New York City has more stringent rent control regulations, more stringent laws about being able to evict tenants? And if so, is that a, an argument in favor of those kinds of laws, which don't go over very, very well in most other parts of the country? You know, I'd say that I, I am sure that the people who are uh, lucky enough to have rent control departments are having an easier time making their payments. But as far as I know, the rent control laws have not changed uh, between now and before the pandemic. So that couldn't explain the drop. Uh, I mean, but I think that New York City has been taking a lot of pro-tenant policy seriously. They've like expanded the right to counsel program um, in the last two years. Uh, and they have also done you know a, a decent job at getting the emergency rental assistance out. So I think that is what I'd look to for why why they're doing so well right now. For places that haven't done as good of a job as getting assistance out, I mean, how many people have been, maybe they're a little behind and then they were waiting for help. It wasn't coming fast enough. Now they're a lot behind. Right, right. Um, we can track the median claim amount that is uh, made in an eviction filing. And that has just gone up uh, enormously since the pandemic started. So here I am looking at our New York data where, before the pandemic, the median claim amount would be for about $3,000. Now the median claim amount is $6,500. So, you know, that's more than twice as much as uh, the average claim before the, the pandemic. I read a comment this morning in the paper. Uh, I believe it was from uh, a, a landlord or it may have been a real estate developer to the effect that, hey, this is the way the market is supposed to work. Uh, you know, there are times when... Uh, more people have apartments. There are times when people are forced to move uh, because of, of different uh, price increases. What do you make of that kind of attitude that this is the way it's supposed to work? I mean, I think that the rental market, just like every market in our country, is it's a highly regulated market, right? There's no such thing as, you know, some free market working the way you see in economic textbooks. We've made plenty of rules. Uh, to to have these markets operate uh, in the way that our policymakers want them to, and I think that the markets as they currently operate really do favor landlords over tenants. And we can look at differences between states. There are some states that file, uh, you know, three or four times more than other states, and then we can compare ourselves to other countries where the American uh, eviction rate is three to four times higher than any country in in Europe. Um, so we, we have it within our power to reform rental markets in a way that will treat uh, tenants and especially low-income tenants with, with more dignity and respect. We've also seen more and more landlords just not doing it the proper way, too, right? Instead of going through the process and filing the change the locks, shut off the power, take the stuff out of the place. That's very possible. Um, there are, I mean you would be able to report uh, landlords who engage in that kind of process if we had uh, sufficient enforcement mechanisms. So is this a, a, a problem that needs a, a real sort of federal solution? I mean, most of these things, are, of course, are handled on a, on a state or even a municipal level, but it sounds like it's such a, a difficult problem and one that, that seems to defy uh, equitable solutions that everyone is happy with, tenants, landlords, does it cry out for something on a federal level? And if so, what would that be? 
Yes, I mean, in my opinion, it requires money, and only the federal government has the purse strings to afford uh, the, the kind of programs that we would need to see to make a difference here. And, you know, we, we saw the federal government willing to spend during the pandemic $46 billion for emergency rental assistance, and that kept people housed for two years. Um, it kept people housed, and it kept landlords paid. Um, we would need to see a, a similar commitment to uh, putting money in the pockets of renters, uh, giving money to providers of affordable housing, giving money to people who already own their homes or own rental units to, to repair them, to keep them in good repair. And we, as a country, you know, put a lot of money into home ownership programs, but historically we have not shown, uh, you know, the same commitment to supporting renters. Carl Gershenson, Project Director, the Eviction Lab. NFL star quarterback Aaron Rodgers with the Green Bay Packers has opened up recently about taking a hallucinogenic concoction while in Peru. It's called ayahuasca. It's like a tea, but it contains a hallucinogenic uh, a drug called DMT. Rodgers talked about it on the Aubrey Marcus podcast. I started deep uh, on a journey where the ayahuasca is usually described as a grandmother spirit. And I met her and walked with her through past, present, and future lives. Says a lot of healing went on. Led him to playing better and being better as a person. Uh, Dr. Keith Heinzerling, director of the Pacific Treatment and Research and Psychedelics Program of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute out in Santa Monica. Uh, Doctor, thanks for being with us. So what do we know about ayahuasca? Well, as you mentioned... It does contain a psychedelic, a psychedelic drug, DMT. Um, it's from a plant. Interestingly, somehow nature also put together a chemical that allows the DMT to be active for a longer time in your body. It's been used in, for spiritual and religious purposes by indigenous cultures for many years. And it sounds like um, Mr. Rogers participated in what we would call an ayahuasca ceremony or a retreat that is a modern attempt at a, a modern adaptation of that. Did he do it in Peru because it's illegal in this country? Is it considered an illegal drug? Yes, ayahuasca, with the exception of certain religious exemptions that are rare, in the United States, all psychedelic drugs uh, in similar to ayahuasca, including psychedelic mushrooms, which contain psilocybin, LSD, uh, and DMT, which is the active drug in ayahuasca, are illegal. And in Peru, possibly due to the fact that the cultures there through history have used these plants religiously and ceremonially, it is legal under certain circumstances for people to participate in these ceremonies. So what do you think about what he's saying? I mean, you could you could take the, the side and say, you know what, it was a spiritual thing and I learned some stuff. Or you could just say over here, you know what, he uh, was tripping out and um, maybe it led him somewhere. Is that how you're supposed to do this? Or we've had the same conversation with magic mushrooms, right? Because they're researching it. Yes. You put it along with some sort of therapy. So did he go to therapy and added this into it? Yes. Well, just based on what I've read of his comments, you know, transcribed and in the press, I have to be honest with you. It sounds like he was quite thoughtful and cautious if what he says is accurate. 
that he approached this in a way that, that I think generally I do recommend people do, which is remember, these indigenous cultures have used these plants, which contain these chemicals, and they consider this to be, these, these plants to be sacred. And they approach it as if it, it is sacred. And that's because they're very powerful. I mean, something powerful can be used for good or potentially can be used for harm, depending on the circumstances. He mentions that he had an intention which was to try to get in better touch with himself and develop a greater sense of compassion towards himself and others. That is something that in psychedelic therapy, we recommend patients do, that they have a, a healthy intention going into it. Um, so I don't think what you would call, I don't think you'd call what he did formal therapy or psychotherapy. It, it's a, a more um, a natural uh, approach that, we wouldn't call therapy, but I do think that it sounds like he went into it with good intentions. Are researchers in this country hamstrung because these drugs like DMT are illegal? Are they hamstrung from doing the kind of research that would help us understand whether these are, are drugs that might be useful here? Yes and no. It, I mean, it is, it's very possible. It is feasible to do clinical research in the United States with any of these drugs, the government will approve it. It's just a very lengthy and time-consuming and uh, a lot of paperwork to get it approved. And time is money, so it takes time and costs money. The real place, the place where we're at is trying to decide the balance between while we are filling out the paperwork, getting approvals to do studies, for example, perhaps with psilocybin for depression, there are patients calling us every day saying, I've tried all of the treatments and I think this could be helpful. Could I get access to it? There has not, the government has been reluctant to approve so-called expanded access or, or what people call compassionate use because these are controlled substances, but people are pushing on that and it, it sounds like they may open up to that more. But for the record, actually, the government with the proper paperwork and the proper scientific precautions and explanations in place. The government has been cooperative about doing the research. It's just unfortunately that research takes a long time. Are you excited with how the psilocybin trials are, are, are going? Because we've had some of those researchers and maybe we've even talked about them as previously mentioned. But the idea there is, you know, somebody leads you through it, you have some sort of epiphany, and then you are better equipped to, you know, pull yourself back up out of that, out of that place that you're in. Exactly. And I am, I'm very, I would say, you know, it's science. So cautiously optimistic. The bar that we're trying to reach is FDA approval to show that these, these medicines are safe and effective for a specific condition like major depressive disorder. And there's a lot of technical aspects to that. But I think we can, particularly with something like ayahuasca or psilocybin, you can lean on the fact that we know that they can do good things. Previous cultures had been using them to help heal people, do good in the world. Not to say that there isn't the potential for danger, because um, there is. They're very powerful. But at least we know they do do these things if used properly. Dr. Keith Heinzerling, Pacific Neuroscience Institute in Santa Monica. 
This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Going out at night, don't need a jacket. More people all over the place are. NOAA found this July had the warmest nights on record across the U.S. Yeah, the average low was just over 63.5 degrees. It was hot during the day as a rash of heat waves led to the third hottest July on record. With us now is Bob Henson, meteorologist and journalist with Yale Climate Connections and author of the Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change. Bob, thanks for being with us. On the one hand, some people will go, well, 63 and a half degrees sounds kind of pleasant, but that's not good that that was the sort of average low, right? That's right. Yes. For a lot of folks, you know, they'd be happy to have a low of, of 63 in the summertime. But they, they, keep in mind, this is taking into account mountainous areas all through the West, um, the far northern tier states. So in a lot of places, it's been much worse than that. I mean, a good example is uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, where they had two weeks in July of lows that never got below 80 degrees. And uh, high lows, not good for us for obvious reasons. It, you don't have as much time to, to cool down during a heat wave. That's right. Our our, our uh, physiology is just not set up uh, to to go multiple nights without at least some cooling relief. So uh, for folks with that air conditioning in particular, it's a uh, really rough. And uh, um, fatalities from heat waves tend to really spike when heat waves go on more than two or three days, including hot nights. I'm sure there are some naysayers listening who are still going to go. Well, you know, it's supposed to be warm in the summertime, and uh, how is this really climate change? How do we convince people like that that it really is climate change? Well, certainly uh, a lot of summer nights have always been warm, but uh, the statistics show they're getting warmer. Uh, since 1970, the uh, average July low around the country has gone up um, almost three degrees. Now, the average uh, daytime high in July has gone up at more like two degrees. So uh, this is totally what we expect. This is what uh, models tell you when you plunk in extra greenhouse gases. Uh, the warming is going to be especially pronounced uh, at nighttime uh, and in the wintertime, actually, and also at higher latitudes. So whenever it normally cools down, that's where we're seeing the accentuated um, signs of global change. Does that surprise people when you when you tell them that, that, you know, the nights are going to warm a little faster than the days? Because I think we automatically think, OK, climate change, that's going to mean in the afternoon it's going to be 110 and the next year it'll be 111. Right. I think we assume that because we're conscious of the sun on hot days that it's you know, it's the, the rays of the sun that give us the heat, and obviously it does, but it's the interaction of that that incoming energy with um, the blanket of greenhouse gases that we have and the land surface, which absorbs the heat and gives it back off. So uh, we're, we're kind of in this stew of, of warm air, and when you add greenhouse gases, you simply warm up that stew, and we're still getting the same amount of sunlight, obviously, so. You know, I, I think I'm probably like a lot of people when I uh, travel, and I know I'm going, you know, somewhere far away, whether it's uh, domestically or internationally. I tend to like go on Wikipedia or something, and I look to see what's the average temperature where I'm going, so I know what to bring with me. But all of that stuff—that's uh, all historical and and probably not that accurate anymore, right? Indeed, yeah. Every ten years, um, there's an update to what are called the 30-year climate normals, and this is an old convention and. and measuring weather and climate, you take the most recent 30 years and average them. So right now, the averages are 1991 to 2020. And every time we do that, it kind of raises the bar a little bit. So what's above average now is it would even be more above average if you compared it to, say, 50 years ago. Where are you on your hopeful meter that we're going to end up getting this one right? Uh, well, I, I've always said, and it's still the case, that I'm a worried optimist. 
Um, for example, I'm really encouraged that there are going to be some serious steps, it looks like, to um, rein in uh, carbon emissions in the United States. Now, of course, uh, that needs to happen globally, and many countries are uh, taking similar steps. So uh, I don't think we're going to see plunging emissions, but I do think they're going to decrease at least somewhat. And every little bit we do helps. Um, what we do individually, collectively, nationally at all, it's all good. You know, the more we can reduce emissions. And by the same token, there's some climate change that's already baked in. You know, we've warmed the ocean so much and we're, we're going to continue to have some warming even if we turned everything off. So uh, we've got to adapt to what's happening. That's where things like cooling centers and cities, uh, planting more trees, because there's huge differences even within cities and how people can deal with the heat. And, uh, if you have a city that's just all pavement, no trees, it's so much harder for those neighborhoods. Does it bug you the kind of people that kind of shrug their shoulders and just say, well, yeah, okay, what do you want me to do about it? Uh, well, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a give and take, right? You know, we, we all feel like our little bit isn't very much, right, a drop in the bucket. But, you know, we all produce greenhouse gases and just in the course of our everyday lives, they're not intending to. It's just because we burn fuel to do all sorts of things. And uh, fortunately, now we know how to uh, burn electricity instead of fuel in many situations. And we know how to gather electricity from the sun and from wind. So I'm optimistic that we can uh, ramp up those uh, as they've been ramping up. We can continue to do that. Uh, it's a massive, you know, Herculean project that uh, uh, I, I feel like Rosie the Riveter sometimes, you know, we can do it. And, and I, I truly am optimistic. And I think humans are adaptable. So the component that we'll have to adapt to, we will. But I'd like to keep that minimized and uh, do what we can to, to keep it from getting worse. Bob Henson, meteorologist, journalist, Yale Climate Connections, and the book, The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change. Have you ever taken a nice long walk at the beach barefoot? You you dig into the sand with each step and you let the ocean water roll over your toes. Yeah, because you're not going to wear your shoes in the ocean. Very good observation. <laughs> what about like a walk on the grass, though? <laughs> you know, outside. Um, bare feet is the thing we're talking about here. Growing movements called earthing. Hashtag earthing has 66 million views. Grounding has 199 million on TikTok. With us to explain how this works is Clint Ober. Earthing expert and author of Earthing, the most important health discovery ever. Clinch, thanks for being with us. So what is Earthing? Why is it important? Uh, I assume it is. Otherwise, that would be like a really short book. Exactly. Well, I wrote that book 20 years ago, and I think there are no, uh, in, in 2012. Anyhow, it's uh, close to a million copies of it out now. But anyhow, what Earthing is very simple. Um you know, 60 years ago, we used to be barefoot or we wore leather soled shoes and leather shoes are kind of conductive. But but earthing is I mean, the earth is ground or what it's an electrical term. Uh, every home has ground, you know, has, has a ground system, all commercial businesses and so on. And the reason that we have electrical ground is to reduce charge or to prevent an electrical event and to prevent harm. And what we didn't know, uh, let's see, about 20 years ago when we started doing the research on this, uh, we didn't understand the the connection that the body had because the body is a you know is the most electrical thing in the environment because every cell is electrical, every you know muscle, every you know everything in the body takes an electron to move, so it's electrical in nature. But what we learned was that the immune system itself is uh, you know reduce produces reactive radicals and and they cause inflammation in the body and so what grounding is all about is when you stand barefoot on the earth or ground yourself to the earth 
skin contact, then you can't have charge in a grounded body. You can't have inflammation, uh, chronic pain and inflammation when you're grounded because uh, inflammation is body on fire, body in flame. So that's the real reason why uh, most people are gravitating to it. Younger people, it just feels good. You feel better. Whenever you take your shoes off, put your feet on the earth, it drains the stress and inflammation out of your body, and you feel better. But when you say the the earth, uh, are you talking about, you know, most people in this country live in big cities. So are you talking yes. about the sidewalk or are you talking about going down to, to the beach or some park area where you've got grass and soil? Well, anywhere where you have soil, grass, uh, or sand or beach or water, that's all naturally grounded. Uh, anything that's made out of earthen materials like concrete is, uh, if it's connected to the earth like a sidewalk, uh, it would be grounded. Uh, if it's wet and rainy, it'd be a little bit more grounded, but there's a little bit of resistance. But but generally anything, you know, walking barefoot on the sidewalk would be like walking barefoot in the dirt. Uh, so you would be electrically grounded. You would be at the same electrical potential as the earth, which is reduces charge, reduces and prevents uh, electrical uh, disturbances or electrical events. If I am intrigued, how long do I need to walk or sit or what do I do? Uh, we tell everybody the main number one thing to do is, you know, start out with, you know, just 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then if you notice a change, then stay there until the rest of the pain is, you know, is drained from your body. Uh, because what happens is the earth has free electrons and they migrate into the body when you're standing barefoot on the earth and and they reduces radicals in the body and oxidative radicals which are uh, the promoter what they're what promotes um, inflammation in the body so I'm and, curious I'm curious Clint because you said uh, earlier you said when we did research so I am interested in knowing what sort of research supports this and what's your background anyway uh, my background is I spent 30, originally I spent 30 years in the communications industry. Uh, I'm 78 now, and uh, but I retired when I was 50. But I spent, the, you know, 30 years in the communications industry where you have to ground everything electronic or electrical to the earth in order to prevent, um, you know, interference, um, you know, all kinds of noise. Uh, like in your studio, everything is grounded, well grounded. If it's not, you're going to get feedback and uh, ground loops and all kinds of you know, chaos. And uh, so, but, you know, I have 30-year background in that. And then, uh, about 20, 24 years ago, I kind of accidentally asked the question, uh, I wonder if it's a problem that humans are no longer naturally grounded. Because when I was a kid, we were always barefoot or we always wore leather sole shoes, which were semiconductive. And so it was 1960 when uh, when um, um, <clears throat> they invented the polymers or the plastics that we make. And the first thing we did was put rubber or plastic soles on our shoes. And and then we made those old shag carpets and so on <laughs> out of plastics and stuff. But we started to insulate ourselves from the earth in 1960. So the rise of everything from diabetes to lupus to MS to uh, cancer, all these modern health disorders that are now listed as inflammation-related health disorders. You can Google any health disorder and add the word inflammation, and you should get a dozen or a hundred 
studies from PubMed that kind of, I mean, you know, that illustrate, I mean, uh, demonstrate the effect of, of uh, inflammation. But nobody knew the cause. And it was by, quite by accident that I asked that question one day. And, and then we began some research. I started in, uh, you know, you know, back around 1998 and back right. in there. We're, we're running. Yeah. We're, unfortunately, we're running out of time. But but I do have one quick question. How I mean, you're talking about the health benefits. How is your health? Uh, I'm 78 years old. I can walk five miles. I don't have any aches and pains. I don't have any cancer. I don't have diabetes, lupus. I don't have any of the modern inflammation related health disorders because I'm grounded probably 80, 90 percent of the time. I sleep on. I, I grounded. I I go barefoot a lot. I wear grounded shoes and. But, it, but yeah, I, I'm, well, you can't see me, I guess, but <laughs> anyhow, uh, no, I'm in pretty good health. All right. Clint Zober, earthing experts, but TikTokers like it. More in depth tomorrow. Go take a walk in the park.